Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you folks again this morning. Glad to be here. Shirley's glad to be here. And it's been a wonderful experience so far already this morning. Worship team, let me just tell you, I thank you so much for everything you've done here today. Um, I love the music, enjoyed the music. And beyond that, there was one song in particular that just sort of caught my heart. That, um, that one to talk about, but ha, now I've lost it. Isn't that crazy? It was one that talked about, Lord, lift me up and let me stand on heaven's table land. Yeah, that one. My mom's 99 years old, has been bedfast for the last number of years. And yesterday we got the news that the doctor says it could be one day, it could be a week. But we're down to the end. And that one kind of moved my heart. Thank you for being here this morning. I am. Um, after we were here two weeks ago, I was wondering what should I be speaking on today when we came back, knew we were coming back, and sort of was really wondering, prayed about it, thought about it, what in the world should I be speaking on? And then I saw a notice on Facebook from our tour guide in Israel this past week, and it settled in just like that. And so this morning, I'm going to be, it's going to be more of a Hopefully a time of learning. In fact, I, I'm one of these people who believes that when you start preaching a sermon, you really ought to be trying to get something across. You shouldn't just be up here spouting out words and hoping somebody gets something out of it. You ought to be, we, you ought to be building a case of some kind, and so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Let me ask you a couple of questions to get started off here. Was there an appointed time, or could Jesus have died at any, at any time? Think about that. Was there an appointed time, or could Jesus have died at any time? Was there an appointed time, or could Jesus have resurrected at any time? And the one that will probably catch your ear more than these, is there an appointed time or can Jesus return at any time? You probably all heard sermons or heard people say, maybe even said it yourself, that the Lord can come back at any time. I like to modify that statement and just tell you, he can come back from me at any time. I have no guarantee of the next 10 minutes. He can come and get me anytime he wants to. But when you're talking about the rapture and the return of the Lord, that is not going to be able to happen at just any time. I want to try and show you that out of the scripture this morning as to what I'm talking about. Uh, we're going to be basing, I think, the comments this morning. You have to keep in mind the background that comes out of Matthew chapter 5. And I'll just quote it for you. It, when Jesus was having a discussion, he put it like this. He said, think not that I'm come to destroy the law. I've come to destroy, but to fulfill and he goes on from there and he says this, not one jot nor one tittle, this is quoting the King James. If I know anything at all by heart in the scriptures, it's the King James. So that's what I have to go with on that. But the second verse that he talks about, when he's talking about that, he says, not one jot nor one tittle shall pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Now that's a pretty, that's a pretty um, firm statement. I mean, it, it is. He's saying here, we're not going to be starting to fulfill the law and not finish it. We're going to finish the entire law, every bit of it, is going to be fulfilled. Now, when you look back in Leviticus chapter 23, you're going to find a list there of what we call the seven annual festivals of Israel. It begins with Pentecost, excuse me, with Passover, and uh, then moves to unleavened bread. From there, it goes on into the day of first fruits, and the fourth one is the day of Pentecost. And it so happens that today is the day of Pentecost. It comes around every year. Today is the day of Pentecost. And um, hopefully you know something about that. If not, I'm hoping I can convince you of it. 
or give you some information before we're done here today. It goes on from there, and then there are three more. One of them would be, the next one would be, in fact, the sounding of the trumpets, the Day of Trumpets, also called Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, which is also called the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes also referred to as uh, the Feast of... Um, uh, Feast of Tabernacles is another word for it too, which escapes me right here at the moment. But there are seven of them all together. When all seven of them were given back in Leviticus chapter 23, you're going to discover that they were all prophetic in nature. Every one of them was prophetic. But we, don't, we no longer have all of them being prophetic because according to what Jesus said, he has come to fulfill the law. And uh, he has already fulfilled a few of them. Now, there are some patterns of scripture that I want you to get a hold of here this morning as well to help you understand that these seven annual festivals of Israel give us a bit of a timetable as to what it is that is regulating Jesus coming again. In fact, it has much to do with his entire ministry from the time that he came to the time that he died to the time that he resurrected, the time that he sent the Holy Spirit to the time he's coming again. All of that, I believe, is given to us in a pattern in the form of these seven annual festivals of Israel. Let me just sort of tune you up here on something else that you will hopefully be able to understand. There are these biblical patterns that I believe are so terribly and terribly important. I want to take you back to the time of Noah, and we'll just do this out of memory. Noah, of course, being that that ancient mariner who built his ark on dry land, and yet the Lord sent the seed, whatever you want to call it, everything that happened there, and the thing floated, and he went way up above everything else. Okay, we're talking about Noah. And so there came a day when the rain ceased, and when Noah looked out the window of the ark, there was nothing there but water. Everywhere he looked, there was water, like he was in the middle of an ocean, even though he was really on top of land, albeit not dry land. And something happened there in the story of Noah that I really believe is significant that should give us some understanding of the pattern and the events of uh, the plan of salvation that God has for us. Now, the, when, when Noah wanted to investigate whether or not the water had gone down enough, he chose a rather unique method of doing that. And the thing that he did was to send out birds. There's no need to send out any other animal because they can't fly. They'll go out the door and drown. So he sends a bird out. And the very first one that he sends out is a raven. Now, a raven is not a friendly animal. It's not a friendly bird. A raven uh, brings forth, conjures up all kinds of ideas of, of sort of the dark side, so to speak. Edgar Allan Poe was one of the, one of the great poets of ancient times, <laughs> ancient to me anyway, but he was a rather morbid kind of a guy. He wrote things that just made you feel bad, you know, like the pit and the pendulum, and, and this pendulum kept coming down lower and lower and lower and was going to destroy the man that was tied underneath it. He had one called the Telltale Heart, where um, the heart was under the floorboard and he kept beating and beating and beating and uh, just gruesome stuff. But he wrote one called The Raven as well. Remember that one when you were in school? Remember anything about that at all? Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a book of long forgotten lore, came a tapping at my window. And he goes on and about this raven. And at the end of every verse, it says, quote the raven, nevermore. Anybody besides me remember that at all? Okay, some of you do. All right. Not a real friendly poet. Sort of like if, if Edgar Allan Poe wrote about you, you're probably going to die. I mean, that's just what he would have put in there. He goes along with Elijah quite well. So this raven is not a... I mean, you don't, you're not going to find a raven eating grain, corn, anything like that. A raven feasts himself on dead creatures. So, let's, can we be morbid for just a moment? The facts are these. 
that when the flood took place, everything died. And when you have bodies, whether they're human or animal, they bloat and they float. And this raven was having a feast. He put him out the window and he never came back. What does that correspond to in the scriptures? Genesis chapter 3, according to the description that Paul gives it in the New Testament, when death passed upon all men. The raven is, is, is signifies the death that occurred when man sinned in Genesis chapter 3. And the raven went out and never came back. And death has ruled ever since then. Nobody lives forever. And yet when Adam and Eve were first created, they were designed to live forever. But sin entered the picture. And death came into the scene. And then we've all become subject to that ever since then. So the raven going forth is Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, excuse me, it happens in Genesis chapter 8, I believe it is. But when the raven went forth, it's symbolic of what happened in Genesis 3. The second bird that he put out, you'll find in, Gen in Genesis chapter 8. He put out a dove, and the Bible says the dove went out and an evening he came back. And the reason it gives is because he found no rest for his foot. He's not landing on all the bodies floating on the water. A dove is a clean bird. The dove is going to look for a piece of land to set his foot down on, and it wasn't there. He went out, and he came back. And that is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Did they have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament like we do today? No. Did they have him? Yes, but it was different. In our world today, because of what happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit as an abiding presence, and he is always with us. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't that way. Just like the dove that went out and came back, the Holy Spirit would go out, then it would come back. A really good example that's easy to understand is found in the man Samson. Because Samson was this guy who had all kinds of strength, right? He was a giant of a man. Is that right? Well, no, we don't know that. In fact, he must have been sort of an ordinary Joe because the Philistines couldn't figure out how does this man have such magnificent strength? They even bribed Delilah to find out. Remember that? He must have been looking just like all the rest of us. But when the Lord needed something powerful done, the Bible always says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he became the incredible hulk of the Old Testament. And a mighty, magnificent feat of strength was performed. But did he look like that all the time? No. When it was, when it was done, the Holy Spirit would leave. And away he'd go. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament. So the dove going out and coming back is the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Let's move up in time. He sent the dove out again. The next time he sent the dove out, it did come back again, but it came back with an olive leaf clutched in its beak. And that corresponds to the birth of Jesus Christ. When the olive leaf is a symbol of peace, in fact, you'll see that in some logos where you have the, the dove with an olive leaf in his beak. It's a symbol of peace. And when Jesus was born, the testimony that was brought by the angels of heaven was peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This bird with the olive leaf brings us up in history to the time when Jesus was born. 
there's one bird left. He sent the dove out again. And the Bible says it went out and never came back. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. That is Acts chapter 2. That's what that symbolizes. Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was given, and it's one of the reasons I chose to speak on this this morning, because we are today on the day of Pentecost. That's what we're celebrating today. And this is the day, back in ancient history, when the Holy Spirit was given so that we could have the kind of salvation that we have today. Because it takes the Spirit in order to make us aware of the sacrifice that Christ made and lead us into the presence of God. In Leviticus chapter 23, I've been referring to it, but I want to turn back there now if you would and just read a little bit of what's going on with the different annual festivals of Israel. It begins in Leviticus 23, and by the way, uh, if there's anyone who really thinks the Old Testament is just dried up old liturgy of some kind, literature, uh, it, it's not. It's exciting stuff. God recorded all of this because he wanted us to know something about himself. And I believe there are things we can discover from looking into the Old Testament scriptures and picking up the pattern of the scriptures so that we can know what he really wants us to know. So in Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 3, uh, excuse me, verse 4, we're going to have the Passover. That's the first one that's set out. Now, the Passover setting happened to be in the land of Egypt. Remember that? The first Passover was on the night of the 10th plague. Where does it get its name from? It gets its name from the fact that the 10th plague was going to be the killing of the firstborn. Every family in Egypt was going to suffer a loss of the firstborn male. Unless they happened to kill a lamb, take the blood and put it over the lintel of the door and down the side posts, and stay behind the blood. And the blood of the lamb would preserve their lives. That doesn't take much of a theologian to transfer that into the New Testament times when the blood of Jesus covers our sins and makes us alive. And so Passover has that symbolism to it. Let me read for you what it says. These are the appointed feasts of the, of the Lord. The holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Wait a minute, did I skip a thing here? No, I didn't. Here, yeah. All right, and the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy, holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day as a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work. It covers two different festivals there in those, in those verses. Let me just tell you that you had to choose the lamb. The lamb would have been chosen on the tenth day of the month. You should find that in verse 6. Let's see here if it is. I wrote it down that way. Hmm. It's not there. Anybody happen to see where the 10th day is? On the 10th day of the month, you choose it. On the first, I don't see it. But take, take my word for it. Since I can't find it, I won't dally around on it. On the 10th day of the month, they chose the lamb. On the 14th day of the month, they sacrificed the lamb. And those four days in between were for the four days of examination. So that you can make sure the lamb was perfect. You couldn't bring an imperfect lamb. It could have no mars. It could have no damage to it. It couldn't be lame or crippled or sick or anything like that. It had to be perfect because it symbolized the perfect Lamb of God. And so the Lamb was chosen on the 10th day, examined for four days, and offered in sacrifice on the 14th day. 
The Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the examination days of Jesus. Those four Gospels tell the story of Jesus from his birth until his crucifixion and resurrection. Those four Gospels give us the four days of the examination of the Lamb so that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he really is the Lamb of God who is going to be given in sacrifice for our sins. And give us his blood so that our lives can be spared. You'll remember that he is called that by John the Baptist when he appeared by John the Baptist where John the Baptist was uh, baptizing people at a place called Bethabram there on the river Jordan. And when John the Baptist saw him coming, he said like this, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. That's what he called him. If you look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, he is referred to as Christ, our Passover. The connections between Passover and Jesus as the Lamb of God are indisputable. Now, the thing that's so interesting to me beyond everything that I've told you before is that when Jesus died, Jesus died on Passover. Remember my question? Could Jesus have died at any time? Or was there an appointed time? And I would tell you there was an appointed time because Jesus himself said, I come not to destroy the law, I come to fulfill the law. How do you fulfill Passover, the sacrificial lamb that was offered year after year after year after year, there was one Passover we were all looking for, and that's the Passover when Jesus died. On that very day, I can't drive that point home to you strong enough, because it follows through as we move through the festivals. On that very day, any other time, and he would not have been the Christ. Why would it have been that when they were going to throw him over the cliff, at Nazareth. Remember that? They were going to throw him over the cliff and he made his way through the crowds. He said, my time has not yet come. We can look at that and say, well, it just, wasn't, it just wasn't time yet. Neither was it the day of Passover. It had to be on that day because that Passover lamb symbolizes Jesus. And if he's going to fulfill the law, you see all seven festivals are in the law. Leviticus is part of the law. All seven festivals are a part of the law. And if he's going to fulfill it, how will he do it? By dying on that very day. Now you may wonder, how can it be that he died on Passover? Since it says they wanted to take him off of the cross before Passover got there. How can that be? Jesus was influenced by the Essenian community. The Essenes in those days were the people who had their primary residence out by the Dead Sea at a place called Qumran. They were those fellows who transcribed the scriptures. That was all they did. Lived out there in a colony and transcribed the scriptures over and over and over and over. That's where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. Because they hid these things in the caves when the Romans took over in 73. They did Jerusalem in 70, but they did out there in 73. The Essenes had a colony in the city of Jerusalem, located in the upper city. And you remember what happened when Jesus told his disciples to go into the city and make ready the Passover. Remember that? How did they know who to contact? He said, you'll find a man carrying a pitcher of water. 
Well, what's so strange about that? Men don't carry water. Women carry water. If you find a man carrying a jar of water, he must be a part of the Essenes because they were a monastic society. Women were not allowed. You remember when Abraham sent out his servant to find a wife for Rebekah? What happened? He found her. Is Rebecca the one that was at the well? Wait a minute, I might be getting them mixed up. Yeah, it was, because Rebecca came back with the servant, Eleazar. You go to the well. That's where the women gather, because that's where the women get the water, and the women carry the water. That's way below a man in those days. I had a course in Biblical Hebrew sometime, a number of years ago now. There was a rabbi that taught the lesson the lessons, I should say. And um, there were some Jewish ladies in there who had never learned to read Hebrew. By the way, I didn't learn either. It takes a lot longer than one course. But there were some Jewish ladies who had never learned the Hebrew language, and so they were there to try and learn the biblical Hebrew. And I remember one evening they got all bent out of shape, and they told the rabbi that this whole thing is chauvinistic because the men get away with everything and the women are the ones who carry all the burdens. His response was a classic. He said, don't you know what the Bible says? He said, don't blame me. I didn't write this stuff. But you know what the Bible says? It says Adam begot, excuse me, um, Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob said that they did it all by themselves. Didn't you read that? You'll get that after a while. <laughs> well, to come back to where we are here, this whole business of Jesus being our Passover, he died on that very day. It's because it had to be fulfilled that way. That's how you fulfill the prophecy. The day of unleavened bread, what happened there? Oh, by the way, I didn't finish my story. Hold on. The Essenes were, were um, a sect who were convinced that the elitists of Jerusalem were wrong in their dating. They were off by a day. They didn't get along to begin with. But at any rate, they thought they were off. And so when Jesus met in the upper room, that's in the Essenian enclave within the city of Jerusalem. He met in the upper room. Doesn't necessarily mean a room on the second floor. It means a room in the upper city. That's where they were. When they met there, it had to be an Essenian setting because they were led there by a man carrying a pitcher of water. And he celebrated the Passover meal with them, which means then that the next day was when he was hung on the cross after being tried by the elitists and he would have died on the Passover day of the Essenes. The whole thing is right there together, but specifically on the day of the Passover held by the Essenes. Well, isn't it an amazing thing that it all happened right there together? Furthermore, the next festival is the one of unleavened bread. It speaks. It speaks of the holy walk of the believer. You may have heard sermons already about a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. I've actually heard preachers who would say that that's talking about the spread of the gospel and how it just spreads throughout the whole world, just like yeast will spread out a whole loaf of, of bread or dough, whatever. That's not right. Yeast, leaven, is always sin. You're not going to find a Bible transferring back and forth between, oh, this time it's good, next time it's bad, and then it's good, and then it's bad. Leaven is bad. Jesus told the, the, his disciples to beware of the leaven 
of the Pharisees. Hence, when you have the day of unleavened bread, it's still celebrated today. Before the Jewish people can partake of the, the um, I say partake, participate in the, the uh, day of unleavened bread, the week of unleavened bread, it's also held during Passover week, they have to go through and clean their houses. They have to be sure that there's no leaven within their house, any bread or anything like that with leaven. It all has to go out. They clean their cupboards. They clean everything. Ladies, it's where spring cleaning actually comes from because the Jewish people had to be sure there's nothing there. No leaven. Jesus' body went into the grave on the day of unleavened bread. It says in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted in all points like as we are and yet without sin. He was perfect. He was totally unleavened. And his body went into the grave on that very day. It's a testimony to the perfection of Christ on that very day. What's the next one? It's a feast of first fruits. According to the scriptures, the book of Leviticus, it says here in verse 9, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say unto them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheep before the Lord, so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave the day after the Sabbath. <clears throat> so what day of the week does Passover begin? It could, be, it could be any day of the week. It could be, as we call it, Monday. It could be on Friday. It, could be, it changes throughout the year, just like what day is Christmas on? Well, well, look at the calendar. We don't know this year till we look. It moves around. During that Passover week, somewhere in that Passover week, you are going to have a Sabbath because it's long enough. You have to have a Sabbath. It says here on the morrow, I'm using King James. That's what I know by heart. On the morrow after the Sabbath is the day of first fruits. What day of the week does that correspond to? Sunday. What day of the week do we celebrate resurrection day? Sunday. Because we read in the scriptures about the women, it says, and very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, it's the morrow after the Sabbath, came the women to the tomb, and it was empty. Think of it. I just read the description of what happens on the day of first fruits. They were to bring new life to the priest. That is, the crop, the first fruits of the crop, bring it to the priest and he shall wave it before the Lord. That's what I read. They would go into the temple or the tabernacle if it's before the days of the temple. They would go in there and stand in front of the Holy of Holies, the veil that closed it off. They would stand there in front of that veil and they would take the sheaf of first fruits and wave it before the Lord. I want you to think about how empty this is now. Because when Jesus died, there was an earthquake. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. It was some 60 feet high, I understand. It was some nine inches thick, about like that. And it was rent at the instant of Jesus' death. It was rent from top to bottom. You wonder how that priest felt just a few days later on the morrow after the Sabbath. He's standing in front of a veil that had been rent, waving a sheaf of grain. I bet that felt weird. And while he was doing that, Jesus was coming out of the grave. 
on that very day. We know he resurrected on Sunday. We know that. It was on the first day of the week. Folks, what I'm telling you is not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of do I believe that or not. It's in the Bible. He died on Passover. It says so. His body went into the grave on the day of first fruits. That very day, it says so. His body came out of the grave. I said first fruits, unleavened bread. He came out of the grave on the day of first fruits. It doesn't matter what I believe about it. That's the fact. It's no disputing what happened. What a difference. How do you fulfill the giving of new life? They used to do it by waving a sheaf of the first fruits in front of a veil. Now he stands there waving it and the veil is rent in, in two from top to bottom. And Jesus is coming out of the grave at that very moment. Doesn't that bless your heart? It's not happen chance. How do we know that Jesus is the Messiah? How do you know that you can trust him with your eternal destiny? How do you know that? Because out of all the people who have ever claimed to be the Messiah, and there are many of them, out of all the people who claimed that, Jesus is the only one who died on Passover. The only one whose body went into the grave on the day of first fruits, and the only one who came out, I said it again, unleavened bread, and then came out on the day of first fruits. He's the only one. And that's why I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus really is the Lamb of God. He really is who he says he is. There is no doubt about that. And so we come to where we are today, the day of first fruits. I'm sorry, the day of the Pentecost. Let me read for you what it says here in verse 15. And you shall count, I'm in Leviticus 23, verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring them, bring from the, your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an F, and he goes on, describes it all, being a fine flour and so forth. The day of Pentecost comes from the, the whole business of 50 days, penta, penta. You know, for years growing up, I heard about the Pentagon. We used to go on school trips to Washington, D.C. when I was a kid. And you'd go past the Pentagon. I never, it never dawned on me why it was called the Pentagon until one time when I was flying somewhere for a set of revival meetings. We landed in Washington to change planes and we took off from the airport right there on the Potomac. It was up in the air and flew right over the Pentagon and I looked down from the sky and saw the Pentagon and thought, well, I'll be. It has five sides. I never knew that until I saw it from the air. That's why it's called the Pentagon. Yeah. This is called the day of Pentecost because it's 50 days. What happened 50 days after the Passover, the original Passover? What happened? What happened was we come to Mount Sinai the day of Pentecost, the first one, would have been born on Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses. 
You see, when we come together on Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ. Not the right day, but it doesn't matter to us. We do it anyway. We celebrate something in particular. When they have these festivals, they are celebrating something in particular. On the day of Pentecost, it's being observed today by Jewish people around the world. What are they celebrating? When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, God gave him the law. They're celebrating the law. And on that very day, God sent the Holy Spirit. Not a week later or a month later. On the day when the law was given, God sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said he would. I go away and the comforter will come on that very day. That's how you fulfill Pentecost. The giving of the law has been overtaken by the day of grace on that very day. Now, when I come to the last question I asked you, is there an appointed time or can Jesus return at any time? By now, I hope you're getting the idea. You see, there's seven of them all together. Four of them have been fulfilled. He died on Passover, into the grave on unleavened bread, out of the grave on the day of first fruits, sent the Holy Spirit on the Pentecost. It doesn't matter what I think about it. It's a biblical fact. That's what happened. Those four are no longer prophetic. They've been fulfilled. So now we call those four historic. There are three of them left that are prophetic. Now, my question is this. Since we have fulfilled the first four by having something historic happen on that very day, why would it not follow that those that remain would be treated the same way? I would say to you, if Jesus would not have done it according to the pattern of the law, he would not have been the Messiah. And I truly believe that when he comes, he will come on the day that we're looking forward to on the day of trumpets, on the day of Rosh Hashanah. You'll see that on your calendars, even if it's a secular calendar anymore. It's on there. This year, it happens to fall on, it's a Sunday. It falls on September the 25th. Hmm. Oh, but there's a trick to this. You see, the Jewish day begins the evening before. Read the creation story. It was the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. When there are three stars in the sky, we're into the next day. And that means that these festivals actually come in the evening before you see them on your calendar. That's what that means. What, what time... What time zone do you think God will use when he sends the Lord back? Which one do you think? I personally believe it's the time zone of Jerusalem. That is the city that is described as the place that God chose to make his name great. It's his city. And every year, they've even found the stone. Every year, when the day of trumpets comes... The priest would make his way to the southwestern parapet of the temple and he would blow the trumpet. If you go over there today, there's this huge stone that is inscribed from those days which says this is the way of the trumpet blower. He would stand on the southwestern parapet of the temple and blow long and loud. 
And that ought to conjure up some images for us. You find that referred to in the New Testament. Take a look, for example, at um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me read for you what it says here, as soon as I can find it. My fingers don't work like they used to. We had a little game we used to play at home on Sunday evening sometimes to find scriptural references called Bibles Up. You hold your Bible up, and then the reference is given out, and you drop it down, and every, the first one to find it can read it. But when I got old, I lost them all. I can't. It just doesn't work. But let me read for you what it says here. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Hmm. I'll begin reading in, in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Wow. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me back up to that. Here it says this. I'll begin reading in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. The trumpet. I'll tell you what I believe, folks, and I want to explain something further, lest you think, man, that's a wild theory. I believe that when Jesus comes, it'll be when the trumpet sounds in Jerusalem. At the same time that trumpet sounds in Jerusalem on the year that God sends Jesus back, I believe the whole world is going to hear the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, be caught up in the air together and meet him in the clouds. I believe it with all of my heart. You say, but Dale, nobody knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows the time. And you are right. Because I don't know if it's going to happen this year or next year or 20 years from now or 100 years now. I don't know. What I am comfortable in telling you is that when it happens, it will happen on that day. Because he died on that day into the grave on that day, out of the grave on that day, and sent the Holy Spirit on that day. And on that day when the trumpet sounds, it'll be the last trumpet. It's been sounding all through the centuries. We're going to come to a day when it's the last trumpet. And that is when Jesus is coming back. That's the day. But I don't know if it's this day. Folks, I was born... July the 22nd, 1948. There has never been another July the 22nd, 1948. Every day stands on its own, and no day has ever been repeated. And that's why I'm telling you that I believe it'll be on that day, in whatever year 
it happens to be, which means I'm not telling you when it's happening because I don't know. I only know that when it happens, it will be on that day. I used to tell our congregation every year when I was pastoring there, you need to know this next week, here's the day. And I don't know about you, but according to the time difference between Jerusalem and where we are, if I was you, I'd start looking toward the east at around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. If he's coming that year, that's when it'll be. I hope this makes sense to you. This is not some wild idea. This is following a biblical pattern. It goes right down through. Right down through. He's coming on that day. So when you hear someone say the Lord can come at any time, modify that just a bit. He can come for me anytime he wants. In the next five seconds or the next ten years. He can come for me anytime. He does it all the time. But when he comes for the corporate church, when he comes in what we call the day of rapture, it cannot be any other time because the law pattern has been laid out and he will fulfill that because he said so. He said not one jot. Remember that where we started? Not one jot nor one tittle. It means the smallest letter is referring to the yot in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the smallest little character. It looks like a little tiny comma at the top of the line. He says not the slightest little bit of the law, even a tiny yot, will pass until all is fulfilled. He is coming back. He is going to do it. It will be finished. I believe whatever year it is, that's the time it's going to happen. There are two more, but we're done for today. Two more festivals. One of them is the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur. That's when I believe all Israel, according to Romans chapter 11, somewhere around verses 25 or 26, it says, and so all Israel shall be saved. This nonsense that the Jewish people have had their chance and now they're out. We have taken over their position. Everything that's been promised to Israel has now been promised to us. To me, it's a violation of what God wants. You need to be careful to keep the church in its place and the Jewish people in their place as you study the scriptures to come out where you really need to be. God is not done with the Jew. I'm not telling you that irregardless of how a Jew has lived, he's going to be able to be saved in the end. I'm not saying that. I'm saying those that are alive at that moment are going to have the gospel presented to them. And so all Israel shall be saved. So much so that in, in mass they will turn to God. There's a big story behind that that I could relate, but I, I, I don't see a clock, but I think I'm probably pretty close to done here. But at any rate, that will happen. And then you'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb. The last one is the Feast of Tabernacles. It speaks of the dwelling together of heavenly and earthly people. Remember what happened on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus was there, and he was already transformed. He was already in his heavenly cloak, and then you had these disciples there. They were watching. Elijah appeared. Excuse me, I told it wrong about Jesus. Jesus was transformed, but he was still living in human form. But Elijah was there to represent the prophets. Moses was there to represent the law. They were there to give over to Jesus to perform what they could not perform. That's what was going on. It was a transfer of job duties there. But it was the dwelling together of heavenly and earthly people. You remember what Peter said? Lord, it's good for us to be here. How about we build three tabernacles? 
Feast of Tabernacles. This book is put together in an immaculate way so that God can tell us what we need to know. God, thank you. Thank you for all these men you used so long ago to copy down what you wanted us to hear today. And for all the men and women who have held on to that all these years so that we could hear your message even in the day we're living in. Give us the aid of the Holy Spirit so we can understand it and know beyond a shadow of a doubt Jesus is real and he's coming again. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother AJ.